The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. Good morning, friends. I wanted to begin by asking a question that I often ask when I teach, and that is simply, would it be okay if I took off my shoes? Is that, okay, you're one of those churches. We're going to be besties. Because more and more what I find is the Spirit of God simply says this, you be you and you be mine. When I am most fully myself and most fully his, I am in the best possible place. I come from Park City, Utah, where my husband planted a campus about two and a half years ago, and it is a joy to be here in your great state of all things good in Texas. A number of years ago, I was living in the state of Colorado when I got a call from my aunt up in Sitka, Alaska, that my uncle had gone out scuba diving, and when he came to the surface, he was dead. And it turned her world upside down, and she desperately needed help with her bed and breakfast, and being one of the only people in the family with a flexible schedule, I traveled up for several summers in order to help her with her B&B. And during those summers, I met some rather unforgettable people, one of whom was a tall, strapping Alaskan by the name of Leif. You see, I was signing books in a church cafe, and he came in, and he noticed me, but I didn't really notice him because I'm a lot like Dory from Finding Nemo. Hi! But I eventually caught on to the fact that wherever I went in Sitka, there was life. And that might have been a little bit uncomfortable or disconcerting or downright creepy, except that in Sitka, Alaska, there is only 14 miles of road end to end. This is one of those tiny towns where you live in a fishbowl existence, the kind of place where you see the same people at the gas station, the post office, the grocery store. I mean, Sitka, Alaska is so small that when people register for their weddings, they register at true value. (laughs) And so here I am. Everywhere I go, there is life, and we just start hanging out. We become friends. And after only knowing him for about five or six weeks, it's time for me to pack up and head back to Colorado. But before I do, he sits me down, he looks me in the eyes, and he says, Margaret, I would like to ask you to consider moving to Alaska to pursue a relationship to become my wife. (laughs) And I remember thinking, ooh, I am so not moving to Alaska for a boy. I mean, they make movies out of people who do things like that. Starring Sandra Bullock. (laughs) So I pack up. I head back to Colorado, but Leif keeps calling and pursuing me. And a few months later, my cousin was getting married off the coast of Washington, and Leif had come in before the wedding to see me, and my mom had come in for the wedding, and for the first time, my family sat down and just shared a a, a small meal with him. And I remember at the end of that meal, my mom looked at me and she said, Margaret, this guy is amazing, and you are a fool if you don't give him a chance. And so... I listened to my mom, I packed up, I moved to Alaska, and 10 months later, I married my stalker. (laughs) And this man who you see up here, this is the man whom I love and serve and adore. But there was another 
person that I met during those summers in Alaska who I've never forgotten. And it was one of the women who just happened to come through the bed and breakfast with her husband. And one morning over fresh salmonberry scones and hot coffee, we were talking about life. When I just asked Lynn, I said, Lynn, what do you do in your free time? And she said, I am a shepherdess. I said, a what? She said, I'm a shepherdess. Like you take care of sheep? Yeah, in your backyard? Well, she begins to describe how near her home outside of Portland, Oregon, she has several dozen sheep, and this is her passion, her pastime, what she loves to do. And as she is talking, my spirit is coming alive. Well, I I don't want to have that awkward transition in the conversation, so I'm trying to land the plane smoothly. But I'm like, sometimes I read this book, called the Bible. And in it, there is this writer by the name of John. And in mm, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, he describes how God is like a shepherd and we're like sheep. And just as the sheep cries out to the shepherd and the, sh- and the sheep come running, uh, so too God as the shepherd cries out to us and we have the opportunity to run to him in obedience. And so I say, is that really what it's like when you take care of your sheep? And she says, yes. And then she begins to describe the day-in, day-out care of her animals. And as she is talking, my soul is just feasting on all I'm learning. Well, before she left the bed and breakfast that morning, she looked at me and she said, Margaret, you seem to be really interested in this whole topic of sheep and spirituality. And I've been collecting articles on this exact topic. Could I send them to you? And I said, that would be amazing. But honestly, I thought she would forget. Because how often have I made well-meaning promises and completely dropped the ball? But a few weeks later, I received an envelope in the mail. And as I began reading these articles, I thought, one day I am going to write about this. And eventually, I tracked down Lynn, and I went and I spent time with her and her flock. And that one thing kind of changed the course of my life. Because up until that point, I'd never really looked at the agrarian or the agricultural themes in the Bible. And so this sent me on this wild expedition. But what was amazing is just that one, that one encounter changed everything. And I share that because there are some of you who right now in your stage and your age in life, you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like there is not a way forward. Maybe you feel like there is not a future. You don't know how to get out of where you are. And can I just encourage you this morning that perhaps you two are one conversation, one breakfast, one breakfast taco away from having God encounter you and shape and reshape the course of your life. Well, as I started to dive into this agricultural world of the Bible, it soon became a culinary pilgrimage. By a sign of hands in here, how many of you all, do we have any fans of the Food Network love watching cooking shows? Yeah, me too, even if I'm not cooking. It's kind of like watching HGTV. I want to see you buy a house, even though I'm not buying one. Strangest thing ever. But what I began to do is I started to look at these foods. Are there fans here of Rachel Ray, Bobby Flay, Chick-fil-A? The Christian chicken? Well, as I started to look at food in the Bible, what I began to discover is that it literally pops and sizzles on almost every page. That from the beginning of Genesis, God creates all of creation like this Zagat-rated, five-star-reviewed Yelp buffet. You see, I think the original couple, when they hung out with God in the cool of the day, that they didn't just talk and walk. I think they noshed and they nibbled. 
Even after a willful act of disobedience regarding food, and in particular fruit, God does not push food to the side, but he actually keeps using it to awaken our hearts at every table that we gather around for his presence and to taste and see his goodness. Nowhere is this more clear than in the life of Christ, a a very son of God, a man who came to this earth and revealed himself with something as common as foodstuff, the very things that you pick off the shelves at the grocery store, the, the bread of life, the true vine. And so Christ comes and as the church is birthed, those who gather are, are intended to break bread together, to fellowship across a meal. Jesus even describes it in the book of Revelation that he stands at the doors of our hearts and he knocks to do what? To do a repo, a renovation? No. The scripture says that he does that because what he really wants is to come in and to sup, to dine with us. And Revelation also tells us that when this whole shindig goes down, that our God has already prepared the biggest, best banquet of all time, the marriage supper of the Lamb, with the centerpieces being himself. And so when we start to look at food in the Bible, it comes alive in a whole new way. Well, in order to study it, I knew it was more than just reading the pages of Scripture. I needed to to seek out particular foods. And with so many, I I decided to narrow in on six different ones. And I started to study them and to seek out people who plant and process and procure them. Not large, big, manufacturing, technological, filled with insecticide kind of things, but, but people who are passionate about producing high quality, who cared about the process, who cared about animal welfare, who cared about the seasons and the planting and the moon and all that goes into growing and harvesting and bringing in food for a meal. And this journey became kind of like a chef's table meets dirty jobs. And so what I did is I went 410 feet down into a salt mine. I fished in the Galilee. I found our nation's greatest fig farmer in Madera, California. I traveled out and I started to find an expert on ancient grains. And as I sought the different people, the one I ended up with happened to be the head of the Yale Divinity School. And so I called him, I introduced myself, and I asked if I could come to his house and bake bread with him for an afternoon. Because that's what normal people do. (laughs) And serial killers. I even came here to the great state of Texas and traveled to McKinney, which is right outside of Dallas, where I graduated from a Steakology 101 course. Yeah, from a guy who calls himself the meat apostle. And with each of these individuals, I opened up the scripture and I asked, how do you read these passages? Not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day. And their answers, they change the way that I read the Bible forever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I grown up in the church? How have I listened to so many sermons? How have I downloaded so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? This journey became the foundation for a book and Bible study called Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. Sorry, the candlestick makers didn't make it. But what I wanted to do this morning was just zero in on two of the six foods that I looked at and just provide just a little bit of an appetizer for you so that you too may taste and see God's goodness. 
And the first comes from something that is so common, something that we celebrate and will celebrate here today. You see, I went and I spent time with a vintner in Napa Valley, California. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, why would you go and spend time with a grape grower? Well, it turns out that if you open up the Bible, what you'll discover is that there are more than 500 references to grapes and vines and vineyards throughout the Bible. We read in the book of Genesis that shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he fell off of the wagon. He planted a vineyard and he drank too much. We also learn that throughout the Old Testament, some of God's greatest leaders, including Isaiah, David, Uzziah, and many more, either took care of vineyards or had people who took care of them for them. We also learn that the prophets love to use vine and vineyard imagery in communicating God's word to the people, which is very interesting because the Bible makes it explicitly clear that drunkenness is forbidden. So then why would God use the vine and the vineyard imagery to reveal himself? Well, turns out that archaeologists have discovered that in the ancient plots of land where the Israelites lived, that often in their tiny plots of yards, there are traces of vines growing there. So that when God used that vine and vineyard imagery communicating to them, it, it might be the same as God using maybe our tomato plants or green bean stalks in order to communicate his heart to us. But I think that of all of the mentions of vine and vineyard imagery, none is more potent than that found in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus takes on this imagery for himself. John 15, verse one says this, I am the true vine. My father, he's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. I, I am the vine. You, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada, zilchamundo. So in order to understand this, I traveled to Napa Valley to spend time with Christoph. And Christoph is a boutique vineyard manager. He, he doesn't take care of tens of thousands of acres of grapes. He manages and takes care of and brings in the harvest for parcels of land that may only be three or five or eight acres. And, and as we start to open up this passage, one of the primary images that comes from it is the image of pruning. And I don't know about you guys, but when it comes to pruning, I'm like, bye. Like, I'm starting to do the moonwalk out the back. I'm like, you first, you first. Because who really wants to be pruned, right? Spiritually, personally, scissors coming at me, never a good idea. Because part of it is that the picture that I honestly have for pruning, well, it's something like this. Bet when you came to church today, you didn't imagine that you'd end up with a barefoot Bible teacher waving a machete. <laughs> when I think about pruning, I kind of have this image that there is this vine that is growing up and there are branches that are attached and clusters of grapes. And God's going to come along and he's going to be like, whoo, there's an area of sin. And whoo, that shouldn't be there. And I don't know what that's doing there. And that's getting in the way. And we're going to cut that back and that back and that back until... 
until he's finally done, and then maybe, just maybe, God can do something good with me. When I described this to Christoph, he looked at me and he said, Margaret, that is not how we prune vines in Napa Valley. He said, if you want to prune a vine in Napa Valley, you actually use something like this. And when he pulled these out, I thought, wow, those are like cuticle clippers. I mean, that'll give you a pedicure if you need one. And he began to describe how during the growing season, he will go out to his boutique vineyards multiple times until he literally handles every single cluster of grapes three to four times personally, just him. And as he goes through, he'll cut back just a leaf and and just a branch so that every grape on that cluster receives not just the right amount of sunlight, but the right amount of carbon dioxide for maximum fruitfulness and maximum flavor. When Christoph began describing that, I began to think, God, if that is what you mean by pruning in our lives, is that what you as the master vintner is doing in our lives, then have your way with me. Can you say those words out loud with me? Have your way with me. And so we see this image of pruning But there's something else because there's a second image that starts to emerge, and that is the image of abiding. I don't know about you, but growing up and thinking about abiding, I kind of had this picture, again, of the vine and the branches and the grapes, and as long as everything stayed connected, as long as I stayed plugged into Jesus, that everything would be okay. And, And that is true, but as I began to study viticulture, the art and science of growing grapes, I began to understand in a whole new measure this invitation for, for you and me to abide in Christ. You see, I always thought that if I wanted to grow great grapes, I would go down to True Value, where I literally registered for my wedding, and I would buy seeds of grapes. And Christoph again was like, nope, nope, you do not have a future in Napa Valley. He said, if you want to grow great grapes, you don't use seeds, you actually use the shoots of previous vines. And anybody who's ever been involved in a church plant, listen up. Because you use the shoots of previous vines, and what you do the very first year is you go through and you plant them. And at the end of that year, those vines are going to grow up. But what you do at the end of that year is you go through and you cut them back. The second year, those vines are going to grow up even taller. When the end of the year comes, you cut them back again. Year three comes. The vines grow up tall enough that they start producing grapes, but you don't take them. You go through and you cut them back. And it's not until year four that those vines will grow up, they will produce a harvest. The manager will process them and bottle them, but it will not be until year seven until he gets to taste the very first fruits of his labor. And because of the high cost in Napa Valley, that vineyard will not reach a financial break-even point until you're 16, 18, or 20. But once the hard work, that heavy investment is done in the planting and the nurturing of those vines, that vineyard will go on to produce grapes for 60, 80, and 100 years. When Christoph described that, I suddenly got a glimpse of the long-term perspective that God takes with you and with me. Because I don't know about you, but there are areas in my life when I cry out and I go, God, why am I not more fruitful? God, why am I not more productive? God, why does it seem like you're not doing anything in this season of my life? 
In those moments, it's like Christ says to me and to you, do you not know, have you not heard that if you will just answer my invitation to abide in me, I am bringing forth a harvest in you. Granted, it may not be for three or five or 10 more years, but I am bringing my harvest forth in you. To which we say, have your way with me altogether. Have your way with me. But that image of abiding, it's not just what's going on above the surface of the ground, it's also what's going on underneath the ground. Because I always thought if I wanted to grow good grapes that I would want lush, rich soil. You know that, that bag of miracle Grow that you can buy and you stick your fingers in and it grows three inches instantly? That is not creepy at all. But he said, no, Margaret. He said, again, if you want to grow world-class grapes, you don't want rush, lush, rich soil. You want rocky, difficult soil. Did you know that there is a winery over in France called Chateau Lafitte, which they grow their grapes in 75% gravel? And there are days that the vintner will go out and he will inspect the vines and he will say, it is not rocky enough. And he will take a stone and he will place it next to the root of that vine. Why? Because he knows that it is that rock, it is that difficult area that forces the roots to go deep, that forces the, the, the vine to grow stronger, that forces the grapes to produce rich flavors that they could not produce any other way. And I don't know about you guys, but I know that I have stones in my life. I have difficult places, areas of pain, places that hurt, those hard spaces. And some of them I have called out to God much like you have, if not once, if not a dozen, if not a hundred, a thousand times. God, will you remove this stone? Will you remove this place of pain? God, will you take away this area that, that it just, it just, it's not moving. I cry out to you and that stone does not budge. And it's like in those moments, the Holy Swiss Spirit whispers, do you not know, have you not heard that that stone, that hard place, that difficult area, it is the very thing that I will use to produce the flavor of my son, Jesus Christ, in you. To which we say, have your way with me altogether. Have your way with me, because God is the master vintner. The second little appetizer food I wanted to highlight is one that I got to know young as a child. And I'm just curious if any of you all experienced this, because when I was a little girl, one of my favorite holidays was Thanksgiving. I don't know why this was, but it was the only time of the year when a white bowl would appear on the table filled with black olives. How many of you grew up with this? Okay, a handful of you. Okay, there's like nine of you. Congratulations, well done, well done. So I don't know about you guys, but for me the best part was that this was the one time of year when I could play with my food. And, and I could take the black olives and I put them on each of my fingers, all 10, and then you get to have a puppet show at the table and nobody yelled at you. It was amazing. And then when you were done, you closed the act by eating them. It was so much fun. 
So wait, which of you had this as a child? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm coming down here for you. So I'm going to have you start to pass these around, right? I mean, an olive brunch. You can just kick it off. There you go. And I know that some of you may not be the biggest fans of olives, and just to be straight up, you totally break my heart. You do. I'm I'm hurting inside here. But I would argue with you that even though you don't like olives, if I were to take some olive oil and I were to mix in some fresh spices and garlic and basil and some sea salt, and then we were to rip off a piece of that bread or the gluten-free in the back and dip it in, you, you might be willing to take a second look at the olive, okay? Right? Pretty amazing stuff there. When we start to look at the Bible, you will discover hundreds upon hundreds of mentions of olives and the olive oil throughout the scripture. And so in order to understand them, my husband and I traveled to a remote island on the island of Havar in Croatia in order to help a local family bring in their olive harvest. And so when we arrive, our hostess, Natalia, stuffs us and our huge American luggage into our jelly bean-sized car, because that's all the cars in Europe, and we start spend the night at her house, wake up the next morning, and we make the hour-long journey into the island of Havar. As we're driving around, there are tight turns, and we're screeching around, and I'm like, keeping it in, keeping it in. And finally, we round one turn, and it's like we've entered all of them its own kingdom, where olives dot the landscape like cotton puffs green all in the distance. And as we're driving, we eventually come to a stop, and Italia pops open the trunk, and and we look at our tools inside, and they're they're so basic, they're so common. It's a couple of well-worn five-gallon buckets and a couple of blue tarps. And I look up at this huge expanse of olives on the mountainside, and I'm like, do we have to pick them all? Because I might have gotten in over my head on this one. And, and she says, no, no, we are not rich. We just own two over here and one over here on this particular hill. And then she begins to explain that hundreds of years ago when all of these olive trees were planted, one man owned the land and he planted them all, except then he had children. Back then, probably eight to 10 or 12 children. So then that, that landscape was divided up by that. And then the next generation divided up again. Then people began bartering with their neighbors. And so we wake up today and now Natalia's family owns two over here and one over here. And we make our way toward that one particular t- tree on the mountainside. And as we do, I start to notice this rustling in the branches. And all of a sudden, I see, I see this woman who, who is in her 70s and we'll just call her height challenged descending from the tree. And she starts speaking to us in Croatian, and I don't know a word, and so I just feel like I'm swept up in a Greek movie, and I'm like, Mama! And I just call her that for the rest of our time together. And she begins to show me how you pluck olives from an olive tree. And what you do is you reach up the branch, and you massage it lightly until the olives plunk, plunk, plunk into your white bucket. If they plunk outside of the white bucket, then you have the blue tarp underneath so that that's caught there and you do not miss a single olive because of its capacity to produce oil. They're so valuable. And so here we are, and I reach up the tree and I do the little massage and instead twigs are flying in all directions. Three olives fall off and mama's like, no. And I'm like, uh-oh. And Natalia explains, you don't want to damage the tree or its branches because that could impede next year's harvest with a long-term perspective again. And so here we are, and and we're out, and we're picking, and and I don't know when during the week it started to happen, but all of a sudden, Mama became utterly convinced that if she would just speak loud enough in Croatian, 
we would suddenly understand. The only problem is no Ablo Croatian. So here, about day three or four, Mama descends from her little ladder and, and she walks up to my husband Leif, again, who's six foot eight tall, and just starts yelling at him as loud as she can in Croatian. And suddenly it looks like she stops mid-sentence and then she takes her little arms and she wraps herself around Leif's body, gives him a big hug. And that is when we discovered that Mama loves Leif the most because he's the tallest and can reach the branches that no one else can. But something happens when you pick olives for eight or 10 hours a day and you are straining upward. Your shoulders and your upper back get so tight and sore. Your hamstrings clank down. And then as you're picking and mama's been pruning at the same time, you'll get scratches on your hand and your arms as you're just working hour after hour. And yet despite all of that, each night when I came home, I would look at my hands and they looked like they'd been soaking at a world-class spa. You see, God handcrafted the olive with antioxidants, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory characteristics. And so even as you are doing the hard work on the olive tree or in daily life in Christ, you are still experiencing the healing. And so I don't think it was a mistake when of all of the substances that God chose to use for anointing, he chose oil. And with 900 million olive trees on the planet today, do you know where 90% of them are located? In the Middle East. And so when he chose the oil for anointing, I believe it was the olive oil. When we start to look at the Old Testament, what we read is that those were anointed primarily at first were among the kings and the priests. And when they were anointed, it wasn't like modern times when somebody may pull out a little bit of oil and just a little bit of dab will do you, but rather when, when they were being anointed, the scripture describes that, that, that it would literally come down their hair into their faces onto their beard and drip down onto their bellies. And so the light would hit it reflecting the favor of God. And so what were these kings and these priests called to do? They were called to bring healing to the land. Then a king priest arrives in the same whose name is Jesus. And his name means Messiah. He is called the Messiah, which translated means the anointed one. And some scholars believe in the book of Revelation, when he comes back riding on that big white horse, he is going to be slathered in oil. And so here is the anointed one, the king priest who comes on your and mine behalf to make reconciliation, peace with God and the world, that he comes in and, and we discover him on the night of his arrest, a brutal night when he could have gone anywhere, uh, anywhere. He could have found comfort in Mary and Martha, his besties, and Lazarus. He could have gone to a temple and found a lonely widow and, and just shared that heartache of his moment with, with hers. And instead, he goes to an X marks the spot kind of place, the Garden of Gethsemane, which translated means the Garden of the Olive Press. Why were olive presses always located within olive orchards? Because of the heavy weight of carrying those olives. It was the most efficient way to do it, just put the press right in the center of all of the action. 
And so here is Christ, the anointed one, who comes into the olive orchard, the olive yard, and he comes probably not far away from that olive press, which we see today in pictures because they've been preserved in time. An olive press in antiquity was simply two white stones stacked on top of each other. And when the top one would spin, the olives would writhe and wrestle until the oil came out and emerged. And so here is Christ, the anointed one, in the Garden of Olives, near the olive press. And here is he, writhing and wrestling under the pressure and the knowledge of the pain and the brutal torture and the crucifixion to come. And as he is there in his anxiety, reminding us that there is no panic attack, there is no anxiety, there is no stress or no weight that you will ever feel that he does not know. In the midst of that, it actually presses him so hard that blood drips from his pores. And yet in that place, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he rises up and he endures the brutal torture of the cross. And three days later, he rises with resurrection and healing power in who he is. And so friends, we should not be surprised by the instruction in the book of James. James chapter five, verse 14, when he asks this question, are any of you sick? Physically, emotionally, spiritually, wounds from your past that still won't heal? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord, in the name of the anointed one. Why did God choose the olive and its oil, that precious oil as the symbol of anointing? I think because he knew long before the scientists discovered, God knew that he was embedding that oil with the healing properties within. But I think a second reason that he does this is because he wants us to be reminded of what Christ did for us. But there is no pain, there is no wound, there is no past hurt, there's no infliction, there's no battle with a crust of cancer like I've faced. There's nothing that you will face that he has not known or partaken in brutal suffering. And so this morning, I don't know what your place of pain is. I don't know what that wound is for you. My hunch is you already do. Some of you, it's relational. It's that person or that family member who was just cut off. For others of you, it's that diagnosis that you were given that, that you never wanted to receive. For some of you, you can't even spell it. It's so complex. You just quit describing it to people because they just they can't quite get it. Just sum it up for them. For others of you, the pain you feel is in your finances and the woundedness of lack of provision in your past or your present or your fear for the future. Wherever that pain is, what I do know and what the scripture tells us is that Christ, the anointed one, suffered for you. He suffered for you that you might be healed. And that no matter how many times you ask, you are never to stop asking, never to stop begging, never to stop crying out 
I know I do. But can I encourage some of you who maybe like me, you have cried out for God to heal you in a particular way and you haven't gotten it. I mean, you have identified that place and you have cried out if not once or a hundred, a thousand times and still it remains. Can I encourage you this morning that just because God is not healing you in that one particular area does not mean that he is not healing you in 10,000 others. In the most generous way he wants to heal you is in your relationship with him. Christ came that you may be made whole. It's a loving act of sacrifice and surrender. Why? Why does our God use so much food imagery, so many metaphors in order to reveal himself? I think one of the reasons is because he wants us to know how near he is, that at every table he is waiting for you to invite him in. I think another reason is that there is no single image or metaphor or word picture that can capture the power and the potency, the wonder and the beauty and the awe of our God. But I think a third reason is honestly that in different seasons, each of us, we need to know God in each of these ways. There are seasons for some of you today who you are just in a season of pruding and you just wanna withdraw, you wanna pull back instead of lean in and allow Christ to do all the work that he wants to do. There are others of you who that invitation to abiding, it may be your first day to day to actually hear it. For others of you, it may have been happening for your whole life, decades beyond, and yet still the invitation is coming at you. Will you abide in me? For others of you, you may come in here frustrated with that stone, that rock, that difficult area that doesn't move, not recognizing that, man, Christ, Christ is producing the flavor of his son in you in spectacular fashion. And for others who long for healing, Christ, the anointed one, rises from the grave with healing for you in his wings. So my hope and my prayer for you is that you will open the Bible and find that food popping and sizzling on every page. That as you do, you won't skim by, that you will dig into the rich love letter that God has personally written for you. That you will find yourself in satisfaction and satiation in him and in the richness of God's word. And that you will go forth each and every day, tasting and seeing, indeed, the Lord is good. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.